Yes, hello, citizens of the People's Game. After gradually surviving the despair of two Richmond losses on the trot for the first time in nearly two years, I'm obviously looking forward to spending the next hour discussing how soon Jack Ross can feasibly win the Brownlow medal or if Sydney Stack will beat him to it. I jest, but only a little. Here to keep me on task is our favourite eagle, the much-loved doyen of fandom, Casey Simons. Casey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And of course, Gordon of Middle Name Hunter, possibly the first of his name, the unhaired, the czar of many a bar, the professor of all things post-production, the mostly fresh lord of the Northcote, the crumbing forward to my hack-crashing antics. G'day, old sport. (laughs) How you doing, mate? I do not enjoy this. Um, I really enjoyed last week when you were a bit sad. Um, I don't like seeing you this way, Jamie. You see that? It just irks me because <laughs> I can't really say that because I was not, I was kind of not happy about you being happy because mm. I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. But I think this week we can actually all just eat cake and be happy together. Ooh, that's champion, that is. What is it? It's a time machine, you idiot. Chickens go in, pies come out. Ooh, what kind of pies? Apple. My favourite chicken pies, you Great <laughs> So we're going to go straight into the pies this week, the hot pies, the cold pies, and the, the lukewarm pie, which we've decided in the pre-show meeting is just another cold pie, really. So we're doubling the negative today. So Casey Simons, your hot pie for the weekend, dribbling dribbling down your chin, dribbling. <laughs> what a lovely visual. Um, my hot pie for the week is following the AFLW um, trade period, but specifically because my team, West Coast Eagles, is very active in this space now coming into 2020 because we have a team next year. And I had a moment this week which I've never experienced before and it really caught me by surprise because I've known that the West Coast is coming into the competition for years now, like that those plans were laid out since the game's inception in 2017, that West Coast would be 2020, so I knew it was coming. But I've still enjoyed AFLW for the last three seasons, um, thoroughly enjoyed it, have loved being a fan of the competition in general. But last week we signed um, our first sort of major player. Like we'd had a couple of signings um, earlier from our uh, high-performance female academy already, so that was exciting enough too. But when we landed Dana Hooker this week, it was just something else. Um, seeing like seeing someone who looks like me wearing my club's Guernsey and my club's colours really made me so emotional. Like it was like I could probably actually cry now thinking about it. Like I just did not expect that reaction and I think I really underestimated the power of a woman wearing the colours of my team and representing me as a woman on the field of play. Like I think that was the piece that I was missing from being a fan of the AFLW in general and like I'm a huge fan of the AFLW in general and I just didn't think that could escalate as much as what it did when we had that sort of first big signing and I'm just so excited. I just cannot cannot wait for next year to watch West Coast go out in the park for the AFLW. We had more great signings this week and I'm just like every time I see a woman putting on our Guernsey and signing pen to paper saying that they're going to represent my team out on the field, it's just filling me with so much joy and I'm just very, very happy right So not it. to rain on your happiness. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but, so Hawker is from Fremantle. Yes. My first question, and I know you have a deep-seated hate for Fremantle. <laughs> so it's just the fact that if, like, if Pav came back from retirement, somehow his body is just, like, you know, 
still in the prime condition that it was when he was playing for Freo and put on a West Coast jersey. He's now the greatest thing since sliced bread. Just why do you have to do this to me, Gordon? Because anyway, this, is, this is a gateway to a more <laughs> a more important question. That was that was the thought experiment to get me there. Mm-hmm. So you've stolen Frio's one of Frio's best players, essentially. Yes. We've just seen Richmond steal the Bulldogs, one of the Bulldogs' best players. I don't, Actually, and I don't also, like the word steal in this conversation. Well, it's, it's stolen because they don't really have a right of a play. Richmond can offer money that the Bulldogs can't. But they're not stolen because they're uncontracted. Yeah, they're also provoked by the AFL to do that, though. So mm. it's, in the, it's in the AFL guidelines, essentially, that you're allowed to take four players from each Victorian club for the new teams, Yeah, yeah. six from these clubs, and then we'll go not – not focus on bringing out like, like like the way Geelong did, but also how do you – so as a fan of the AFLW before your club, and now I think your club will take over because we see how you talk about mm-hmm. AFLM and your West Coast Eagles, and they're, they're close to your heart, I think, than a, than a general sports organisation is. Yes. But how are other clubs meant to try and build culture, build standards when, when three captains walk out and join new clubs? And, and fair enough to them because it's bigger money, it's bigger profile – Good on them. Yeah, but how do you like? How do you how do you resolve that as a club when your captain walks out, and some of the time not without conversation? So like when Brady Davies has seemingly left Carlton in the big mm. lurch because it took them by surprise, by accounts. Obviously not only in the same thing there. I think your question about culture is really interesting because I would argue how do you build culture in the state of the competition that it's in in general right now in mm, a short fine. amount of the season that they have. And the semi-professional nature of it. So I feel like until we have full professionalization of the league in general, the question of culture is not irrelevant but doesn't hold as much of the importance that it does probably in the AFL-M competition in terms of loyalty of players, in terms of on a kind of brand equity in that space. Hmm. So, But the players that do have the position of privilege are the ones who are the captains mm. and they're the ones that would have been retained. If those three players wanted to stay at their clubs, they, they could have. And they could have gone and built something. They're the ones in that position. They're not the ones on the fringes of the club changing because it's their, their only shot at playing professional footy or semi-professional footy again. But I don't it's, think it's, it's, it's they a weird... do. I don't, think that, I don't think they have the opportunity to build something in the game's current format. Like I still think it's still – that like the turnover is there because it's still semi-professional. Like, um, like they have more of a voice and they have more – I don't know, more of a platform, I guess, and more of an identity, but I still wouldn't elevate their role much more than other players in terms of them feeling like they should stay to build something in that current format. Like I still see... But you don't think so? Like they were the captains of their clubs and teams. So it's them turning to their own teammates and saying, I don't want to be here with you. I want to go somewhere else. I think that's still okay in a semi-professional sport. I don't think it's. Even, I don't think it's okay in an amateur sport. Uh, I wouldn't think, like it from my own, like from the teams I've been involved with. If I went and saw my captain walk out on me, and go, I'm getting a better opportunity, whether it's better facilities. But that's or in better, an established competition. Mm, I kind of throw the about. throw the Darcy Vessio in tweet in here. I don't think the system lends itself to loyalty because yeah. even these big name players, because of the way the salary cap set up, you don't know how much money Katie Brennan's going to get from Richmond in endorsements. It could greatly. Um, dwarf oh, yeah, anything no, she was yeah, going to get I'm from not, the Bulldogs. Not, but, I'm not, but I'm not blaming the player. I'm blaming the system in the sense of like the AFL has actually promoted this. Yes. And the AFL yes. guidelines say that you should and you will and you almost have to pinch the best players from the other clubs. 
A, because it helps these, te- these new teams be good enough straight away, and B, because it gets people like us talking about it, it helps them sell papers, it helps, it helps grow, grow the game, in inverted commas. Yeah. But it's, it's growing it by sacrificing the other teams that are already there. So now Bulldogs fans have to go, oh, well, like, we could never have kept them. Like you're getting those Chris Grant crying moments. And, like, yes, but now I think you're having a different conversation. Like I would have this conversation that you're having now with you, but I don't want to place any of this on the players or the captains or individuals. I I'm don't saying think wouldn't it's... it be stronger for the, for the AFL to try and say that these are protected players for these clubs because they have meaning to the, to the clubs and the fans that already exist there? If they offered them something more than what they have, then yes. I think they should be doing more work to – building up that pay level for them, building up the professionalisation of it. Yes, they should. But in the current climate, I don't want to have the conversation that certain players should feel like they should have to stay and do extra work in building a culture and building a brand, which would be outside of what they're doing already. That pressure should be not put on them to do that in the current climate of the game. Yeah, no, I agree with that point. Yeah. I just think it's bad. I I just think it's bad for the competition that these things are encouraged to happen by the people that run the competition. Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of aspects of this competition. So, the cold pies. The cold pies. Not dripping down your chin because you're not enjoying it enough. So, we're going to start with you, Gordo. My cold pie uh, is a quotation. You've been reading a book called How How Not to Be a Boy. This is going to play like a man, according to Brendan Goddard. It's, of course, about the Ben Brown staging, inverted commas, incident. BG's rant uh, on Channel 7 via ABC Grandstand and what it means to be a man in sport. And so it's all about Ben Brown falling over because he was in a wrong contest where he got fended off and he sprung back apparently too flamboyantly, too much milking of a free kick, and it shows a sign of weakness and not playing like, quote, a man. So first off, well, actually, you're not allowed to be touched. So the direct quote from uh, Brendan Goddard was, Ben Brown, just stand up and play like a man. He's allowed to touch you. Why are the umpires buying into that? Make a stand and say that it's not acceptable. Well, Brendan Goddard, if you actually look at the rules of AFL football, you'll realise that you're not allowed to touch someone in the rock contest like that in a fend-off. So actually the free kick was correct. And yes, Ben Brown may have tried to milk the free and make it obvious to the umpires. But in this current setting where the umpires are having a terrible time of working at the rules are, you can't blame him for trying to make out a very obvious statement about the rules. Two, it's an isolated incident. He had a massive game, Ben Brown. Did many great things for his club, for his team to get the win, and also had an amazing act of like football courage where he sacrificed his position in the forward line, chased down a midfielder and tackled him to the ground. And yes, he gave away a free kick because he was actually too rough, which in probably Ben God's reasoning would be too much like a man. Which comes to my major point is what the F does playing like a man even mean? In a weekend where we saw Callum Ward being hugged on the bench whilst he cries and hugging his co-captain after the game, what is this sense of manliness? Is being tough manly? Is, is, it, is it a sense of he's too weak to be a man? Is Paddy Dangerfield more of a man because he hit the ball off the ball? Is DeBoer more of a man because he got hit and then didn't hit back? Like, what does it even mean? We have a female competition for football. That statement shouldn't even exist. So, Brendan, instead of shoving blame on someone else, have a look at yourself and think about if you want to have this position of privilege in the media, be very careful with your words because that is now your job not yelling at your teammates like you're used to it is. Very hard not to be a boy areas as well. The greatest quote in that is that men are only allowed to show anger as an emotion. Mm. And that, I think, is plays into this. You're not allowed to do anything other than be tough, ultra-aggressive, tough, deep-voiced. Which, which, when you bring up things like the Ward example and the general outpouring of emotion that we've seen from a number of successful AFL clubs in recent years is completely in step with the current trends in the game. Brennan Goddard is completely against the tide. Mm. Casey, uh-huh. your pie, cold pie. Uh, my cold pies 
So a bit random, but bear with me because I will try and bring we, it back We always to do that. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, if anything, she bears with us, mate. Let's not get that. Yeah, yeah but this is very true, true, lads. Um, <laughs> so recently, um, and this is a sport I don't really follow too closely, but um, a couple of weeks ago, the Canadian Women's Hockey League uh, folded. Um, so the competition actually collapsed due to issues of sustainability which is really, really sad. Um, it was a competition that was in its 12th year, so it had been around for over a decade. Um, but for many reasons that were listed in the press releases by the organisation, just lack of media, financial, um, all the stuff you're sort of used to hearing when it comes to women in sport, they just didn't see that they could run the competition anymore, which leaves a lot of those athletes with no options to play their sport professionally, which is quite devastating. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of where we are with AFLW, and this probably stems onto the conversation that we were just having before, is that I think sometimes we do take for granted when we have something because it's not the first time in history that women have had sporting codes given to them. Um, and I read a really interesting paper um, that was released in March by a colleague of mine, Dr. Fiona McLaughlin at Victoria University, who's written this excellent paper, um, which is called it's boom time again, progress narratives and women's sport in Australia. And what she's done is taken articles that have been written about women's sports from 2015 to 2017, which has been really hyped up in the last couple of years as this boom time that we're experiencing at the moment in women's sport. And she's compared them to about 400 articles that she's dug up from back to the 1890s where she's pretty much like headline for headline compared very similar narratives like yeah, they all use the word boom, like women's sport is booming and it's happening and women are finally finding their place on the field. And this has happened for over a century. But these leagues, these games, these sports have all folded at certain times and then they've come back. So the folding of the Canadian Women's Hockey League just really made me think that when I have conversations with people about the problematic nature of AFLW and many other Australian women's sports, a lot of the time that I do get back is, oh, but we've got it now, so everything's okay. And women can play football now, so isn't that great? And they talk to me like the work is done when it's really not. There's so much more to do. And, yes, it's great that we have the AFLW and we have you know, women's cricket doing so well and you know, women's soccer doing so well and a lot of other women's sports are, you know, to use the term booming, um, they are, but they've boomed before. So I think we should look to the Canadian Women's Hockey League as a bit of a cautionary tale, especially when it comes to AFLW because it is so young and not just take it for granted that just because it's here, it's here forever and it's already amazing. So we've already discussed that there are some issues about it. I mean, there are multiple issues. It's great that it's here and I like to be a positive and optimistic person and hopefully those issues will iron themselves out over the next couple of years. But, yeah, it's just that really sat with me this week that, you know, potentially this could be something that does go away because we've seen it before and that actually does terrify me. So that was my cold pie this week is just the fear of losing some really great momentum in women's sport. So my lukewarm pie is one that you must consume if you enjoy following football media. And it's the very end of coach killing season. We've been through one month of AFLM. Someone's been ready to die every week. And literally. It's worse than Game of Thrones. It is like Game of Thrones. They may, as well, they may as well have just been Game of Thrones year already. So round one, we had Alan Richardson in the gun. And then a gritty win means that he's safe forever now. Like, it was just like, he vanquished that dragon, now he's safe. He can just coach for the rest of his life. No problems. There's not, the same problems are still there. It's just that because he won, yeah, cool. Woosha round two with Essendon, 
and then you're going to round three. It was Simon Goodwin because Wusha defeated him. It was like it's like a reverse championship belt. I just pass on like the it's like it's like the bomb. It's like this. It's like pass the pass the coaching bomb. Oh, it's like pass the, the parcel with the parcel with it, bomb. It explodes and your coaching career is over. So yeah, Wusha passed good. it on to Simon Goodwin. Simon Goodwin passed on to Brendan Bolton, and now it's this week. It's with Don Pike. Even though Carlton lost, it's because Adelaide was less convincing against North than Carlton was against Gold Coast. So the only one of those that I agree with would be Bolton, and that's mm. because it's such a long period of time. He's three seasons in, and there's not enough wins, and they don't—they don't like they're not even enjoyable to watch. There's nothing like everyone talked about the green shoots of Carlton. It's all PR spin. Whereas Don Pike, like they were in a premiership, they were, they were playing off for a premiership two years ago, and now they're not. But they're not the worst. There's something to go back to. Best. And like, is there a problem? Sure. And then it's all the media. The media just wants to tell this story. So it's like, oh, there's whispers that he's on his way out. There's whispers that the, the players want to overthrow him. Like it's a pirate ship or something. Like it's just a... Have you been to Adelaide? <laughs> it's not floating in the water, though. It's not like you just overthrow the captain and then take over. It's not like text. Well, actually, I suppose last year. There is precedent that is, suggests this might happen after the whole, um, yeah, extracurricular mind activity they had last year. But I don't understand. Do we find this enjoyable as football consumers that the next coach in the gun week to week? I don't because I would rather Mm -hmm. talk about and having seen reinventions, Nathan Buckley, Damien Hardwick, I would rather have a conversation about what those coaches can do to improve what they're doing rather than the conversation about, oh, no, just get rid of him. And even in the Carlton case, like Carlton were pretty close and we highlighted the three critical errors. They do one thing differently, they probably win the game. So that's my problem with the consistency of media coverage, though, is that I would have, I would have covered that game the same regardless of Carlton win or lose. Which is how teams, the teams review it. Because Carlton were bad. And you can, get, you can play bad and win. That's just sport. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't be told that you played bad. Whereas it just seems to be results-driven. So if Wusha didn't beat if Wusha's Eston didn't beat Melbourne, then he's still in the gun. But because they did, now he's absolved. Mm. Like yes, it's a win loss industry, but that's not how footy works. No, that's clubs are process works. Yeah, and the and media is not yeah. clearly. And so if you, it was I saw that with um, Chris Judd got put in the put in the gun on uh, Footy Classified, and he said that like, why would we throw out like we threw out our uh, strength and conditioning coach last year? Now he's the strength and conditioning coach for the New England Patriots, one of the most successful organizations in the world. So is he a terrible person that shouldn't be doing strength and conditioning? Well, they certainly don't think so. So it's like why, like all these coaches go and get other coaching jobs mm. in the same like in the same organization that is the AFL. So clearly they can coach. This came up on SEN yesterday on Waitley, confusingly by with Sam McClure, and they asked Buckley like, "What's what's with the canny coach idea?" And Buckley basically said exactly what you just said. Pretty much everyone that gets sacked goes and gets another job in football because they all can coach hmm. uh, to some extent. You don't become an AFL coach, in theory, one of the best 18 head coaches of AF, Australian rules football in the country if you have no ability to do what you're doing. Hmm. So that's my tinker. Don't sack. Go to have, Make sure you have strong mentors around your coaches who hold them accountable to what they need to be doing to maximise their performance rather than jumping off. That's just good employee management. And I suppose the other thing there with how footy media works and how consumers of footy work is that most people, when you have 80,000 of the MCG, 1% know about the mechanics of football maybe, if you're lucky, 1%. So it's a very hard thing for the media to go, well, actually what they need to do is that the A1 stoppages and blah, blah, blah. That's never going to be talked about on a mass media scale. What is going to be talked about is that Brendan Bolton can't coach. Yep. 
So when do you sack the coach? If you go through that process that you're describing where you do do the tinkering and you work on things and you keep trying to build that culture, when is the point where that doesn't work and you sack a coach? When well, you would set a contract term that allows it to run its course, I would have thought. Oh, no, you, can, you can terminate a contract. I'm okay with that because mm. sports is a competitive environment. It's mm. not like a there's no need to be like, conscious of their welfare because if you sack them, they get paid out. So there's no... They're not at a loss other than they just don't get to don't get to perform their act anymore. But I think it's, it has to be long enough as an organisation you're happy they're not going to fulfil it, not going to change. So if Brendan Bolton got sacked this week, I'd be like, fair enough. He's mm-hmm. had three years. Yeah. He's had three cracks at it, three pre-season, three dips the draft. That makes sense. And they haven't. They don't look like they're going anywhere. Like if it's to some extent, you know, Woosha. It's like Simon Goodwin take his team to a prelim and then get sacked four weeks into the next season. That's just media hype. Like he's mm-hmm. never going to get fired that early on. Yeah. So I think that it is, it need, as an organisation, you need to know that. Well, are we going? Is the action we're going to do worse or better than the current status quo? Because if you sack them, and then what? Well, that's season over anyway. It'd be a new coach. I'm not going to just bring another guy in and do the same thing. Then why did you sack him in the first place? So that's I think. Hmm. I also think the industry has changed to what it was ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. Well, when you I've just never really coach. been a sacky. Coach plays anyway, unless you're a Richmond football player. Just one gear on my fix-it bike. You got a plus one here for my gig tonight. I play sick. We all play sick. 2020 vision, just a pair of empty frames. Dressing like a nut, although I never got the grades. I remember when the kids at school would call me names. Now we're taking over their estates. So for the rest of our talking points. I was sat there, had a thought bubble while I was watching Brisbane stink it up. Mm-hmm. So men dressed in dress shirts with football jumpers over their collared dress shirts. How do we? How do you assess that? No. So that was my immediate. <laughs> I think you've got to be very, very clear about what you're doing with your footy get up. Just no. Either, either commit to the jumper, and I think I can cop jumper over t-shirt, but why not just go the scarf and some sort of jacket? Pretty sensible. It's winter. Look, I'm all for people, and when I say people, I mean adults wearing jerseys. Um, I'm all for like embracing fan culture, but not the shirt. Um, and I know that people do that, like in the MCC, because they need the collars. Which, like, there's not a reason to do it. Just no. no it's just a no, terrible no. look. I will only allow this look on grand final night when players do it when they've won the grand final. Oh my god, we just had a moment. Because I was thinking exactly what you were thinking. <laughs> I go out of my brain. <laughs> I go even more hardcore than this. I'm not even really about you wearing the jersey. The Guernsey, champ. Guernsey jersey. Sorry, I shirt. can't. I should stop. As like an off. adult fan. As yeah, so kids perhaps, but like yeah, especially like from my point of view, like if you get to wear the West Coast Eagles Guernsey, it's because you're a West Coast player. Like at the AFL level, it's like you have to. It's really it's a really coveted thing. And when you go into clubland, they talk about playing for the playing for the for the logo, playing for the club, playing for the Guernsey. Mm. It's the same thing when you go to the cricket and you say they were wearing like a white Australia, test Australian shirt. Yeah, it never sits well with me. It's just a weird thing. It's like it, that's such a coveted position to get to as a sports person. And like there's, a, there's an aspect of it being cool if someone was wearing your shirt. But I think like it just like when you wear it as like an, an accessory, it kind of diminishes it a little bit, especially because like the clubs make all this paraphernalia. Like you could wear a collared West Coast shirt, Richmond shirt, Freo shirt, whatever shirt, and in the MCC, and still mm. like, why wear the Guernsey? I can understand that position. My counter to that is also that 
wearing that as a fan still is special because of, like for me, I don't wear a Guernsey to the football a lot, um, maybe once a year. And I usually keep my Guernseys at home because I usually am a bit of a nerd and go to the post-match events and get them signed and they're special and I don't want them to be damaged. Um, but putting on your team's Guernsey as a fan, I think is as special as playing for the team. Like you're identifying yourself as part of your club and you're playing your role as a fan for your team. As sappy as that sounds, and perhaps it does diminish what the players do a little bit, but I don't think so. Like I think that identification as a fan is still a really important piece. And I think some people do think it's tacky for adults to wear them. And I think that's okay if you have that position. Um, I love like that kids get to do that because I think that has a whole aspirational quality to it, which is great. Um, But I still think that it shouldn't be like, yeah, taken away because it's special for players. Like it still holds a special place for fans as well. I think the fan culture in some ways has a lot more resonance than the playing culture as well because, you know, it is special to play and represent a club. That's a career. Um, For a lot of people that's interchangeable. Like we were talking before, you know, about players like moving to different clubs. For a fan, that's your life. Like that's your identification for life. So I think for me I'm – I'm on board with it. I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's, and it's that split. And that's probably something I battle with in terms of fan culture is I, I come at sport from a participant first mm-hmm. and a fan second. Yeah. And all my, all my favourite sports moments are usually because I was participating in them as opposed to viewing them. Mm-hmm. I don't have that, like, deep club urge most of the time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I always found that weird because, like, when, when you get, like, your membership pack, they give you a hat and a scarf. They don't give you a Guernsey. <laughs> so it's like it's like it's clearly written like it's written in the subtext of the club even being like, "Here's your fan kit. Like you, you're a fan. Like thanks for your membership. We're with you. We're it's about us." But like if they like in in my mind, it's like they would have given them a Guernsey with your membership fees. I mean, if you were paying a thousand dollars for a membership, maybe. <laughs> yeah. mm. It um, just seems like yeah. It just seems like it's not yeah written at that subtext. And like, but I would say everyone's ignored because you go to a footy game and everyone's wearing. You get it in most sports nowadays, mm. and, and it's obviously not going to be given away because there's a lucrative market for selling them. Hence yeah, why there's of like course. Forty thousand different alternate kits, and then they go mm. and abuse kits by covering it with marble shit. So, <laughs> Anzac, Anzac Day Guernseys that should be worn but not sold. Different thought bubble, and one for next week. Is it a, no, that's a warning. Must be a warning. It's a warning. Oh, up. That's a warning. Okay, starting positions. Just a warning. So, a team's deliberately trying to cheat 666. It's only a warning. It's happened a couple of times now at key moments. So, it happened in the Carlton Gold Coast game. It happened in the St Kilda game in round one. Where are we at with that, Gord? Well, I don't think it's cheating because it's just a warning. So, they break the rule, the umpire pulls them up, and then play on. Like, that's what it is. But are they doing it deliberately? I think so. And so the St Kilda one makes sense because they needed time. So if the umpire bounces the ball, and it's all around the bounce more than anything else. So if the umpire bounces the ball and it's a skewed bounce, he brings it back, they waste four seconds, and then they basically can't win They can't win that game. So, yeah, that makes sense. And then the Gold Coast one, I think it was just that they have wits dominating the ruck, and so a throw-up as opposed to a ball-up is more advantageous if the ball goes straight up and the more dominant ruckman has a better chance of winning that ruck contest. And so you break it again, so they force the umpire to ball it up. I don't understand why you give the warning though. Like you don't, you don't. It's not. It's not out of bounds on the floor if you accidentally kick it out of bounds on the floor. It's still the same. Still the same rule. If you accidentally tackle someone high, it's still a high tackle. If you accidentally line up in seven six five, 
Steph Bicky, it's a free kick, surely. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I just don't think this is that hard. Do the maths. Get it right. Someone in the goal square. I, I can't believe that people are managing to balls this up. And I can only assume that they're doing it deliberately mm. because it, it, it's pain. It's mind-numbingly simple. It's the top 1% of footballers in the country. Ah, but can they divide 18 into three even numbers, Gordon? They know it is. Two points and not a stretch to say the man standing between us, Cameron Ling, was the most influential player on the ground. Welcome back to the footy, Andrew Gaff. Congratulations. Great result. Yeah, thanks to us. It's obviously been, been a while and it's been tough to sort of reflect on it all, but uh, it's just the main thing was about getting out there tonight and contributing to a really good win against a great team and it really sets us up and uh, it's going to be a good trip back. So, Casey, question for you. Are the Eagles fans too pro-Gaff? Gordon and I had a conversation about Tiger Woods' redemption story before. Is this Andrew Gaff adulation going a little bit over the top? I'll introduce this by going through Brad Scott's comments on 360 this week. So he said, whatever people thought of Andrew Gaff before the incident, I think if it is at all, at all possible, he has actually grown in people's estimation with the way he has responded. Look at Tiger Woods. You can be at the lowest ebb, but it is how you respond that counts. Over to you, Case. Mm. Mm. Uh, this is really hard. <laughs> um, That's why I asked. Pretend he wasn't wearing a West Coast Eagles jumper. Yeah, I mean... This is coming from someone who wrote an honours thesis about adoring Ben Cousins. So I'm very familiar with the concept of having flawed heroes. <laughs> Such is life. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I'm very, I'm really uncomfortable with how the narrative um, around Gaff is sitting at the moment. Uh, I don't like it. Um, that's not to say that I don't love Gaff as a player. Like, he's one of my favourite players. Um, what he did last year was a genuine shock to me. Um it really it hurt me to see someone who I really admired do something like that. Um, I think he's been phenomenal in his the games that he's come back and played, um, which I think is not in question at all. I think that's what everyone's saying that he's you know he's just dominating, and it's great to see. But the redemption story narrative, I don't think is is valid, and I don't think is appropriate. Um, I think also in that. Uh, interview that Brad Scott gave, he said something about, you know, true character is defined in, you know, moments of adversity. Mm, true character reveals itself in moments of adversity. Yeah, and he's talking about the adversity being the past six months, which I have no doubt was adversity for Gaff. But also I think the most defining moment of adversity where Gaff re- revealed some of his character was those few seconds where he made a choice to strike someone because he was being pushed around or he was had someone up in his grill, um, he made a conscious decision to use violence in that moment. And I think that shows a lot of his character, even though the narrative around Gaff is that he is a good guy and he'd never done anything like that before. This is why we have issues in society around, you know, coward punching because people do make these decisions despite not having any prior signs of violence before, but there is something inherent in people that allows them to make a decision that is horrific and has horrific consequences. And, yes, it's upsetting and it's really hard to grapple with, but that's something he did. And I know he's sorry and I know that he's worked hard to rectify it, rectify it. and I'd be very surprised if he did anything again. I think he has shown real grace in how he's handled his suspension. Um, he hasn't talked up missing the grand final. He hasn't really done a woe is me story 
Um, I think he's played it out very well. I'm a bit disappointed in how the media has covered it um, because I think we need to have a bit bigger conversation about the other side of it. And I think we need to remember what he did. Um, I think he can still play great football and we can still talk about him as a great footballer, but I think for better or worse, and as much as it's going to kill me as a fan of his, like I will always have to remember him in like with that incident in relativity to him because that's important. We need to acknowledge that he did that. Yes, he's sorry. Yes, he's moved on. And if he's made amends, that's great. And I know he's doing like a lot of charity work as well, which is fantastic. But we still have to remember that that happened. Like I think with redemption stories, we can't focus on the victory or the the coming out of it. You still have to remember where it started for it to stay relevant and for it to have any lasting impact. I think the AFL is still grappling with it as an issue because we see this week that Patrick Danifield gets off for an off-the-ball hit because of because of how it works in the metric, yet the week before, Dusty misses out but then gets reduced. So we're saying that, oh, it's okay to hit someone, with, uh, illegally hit someone outside the rules of football if, if they're annoying you, if they're, if they're tagging you, if they're, if they're niggling you off the ball. Ironically, it's the same person each week. But now it's like, what does that, what does that send to the rest of the players? So mm. Fife, when he comes back, is allowed to just hit someone because he's getting tagged too hard. Cripps is allowed to hit someone if you tag too hard. If you're good enough in the game, you're just allowed to just deal with that that way. It still says it's still an issue in the game where we go, oh, a certain level of violence is okay. There's a difference between, I think, physical impact and violence. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the act. Like, yeah. that wasn't a tackle. A tackle mm-hmm. can be aggressive. Yeah. But it's not inherently violent because it's part of the game. But Correct. punching someone elbowing someone, hitting them in the head, isn't. Mm-hmm. And we do so much around everything else, around tackling, around high contact to avoid head injuries, but then we're going to be okay when we just backhand someone without looking back, when we're careless, careless all the way through to violent deliberately or instinctually, which is probably even worse. Yeah. So I just, yeah, the AFL probably needs to go hard on that. And when everyone goes, oh, it wasn't worth, you know, it wasn't worth two weeks, well, then we have to wait until the next jaw gets broken and the yeah. next guy gets paralysed before we go actually... This is bubbling because there's a, still something happening there within the game. Your players to do something, or are they just going backwards, sideways? And it's 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 boring. We're waiting for something to happen in football, and for 120 minutes, there's not a lot happening for a bit. In some games, some games are fine, but there's some other games which were just oh, you've got to be kidding. So is there some, is there anything that they can do? I mean, if this well, is what just... they do on what this is all coaches now. Everyone's going to say rules, rules, rules. Oh, the rules has done all this. No, no, no. The coaches are doing this. The coaches are instructing their players how to move the ball out of the back half, and they're so scared to turn the ball over and give up scoring opportunities. They're just going short and taking the safe, safe option so they can get it down the ground. Gordon, have you heard that footy's footy's in trouble? Is it? Yeah, the, the game's bugging, mate. Is it? It's bloody bugging, mate. Oh, because I, I swear people are still turning up and tuning in and talking about it and doing footy tipping office competitions and no, Jared. and footy podcasts. No, Keeping's off is ruining it, mate. Keeping's off? Keeping's off is ruining the game. Also, oh, the, the basic construction of football, that being kicking it and someone else catching it. Yeah, it's ruining it. It's ruining it. Yeah, it's the ruining. game. It's boring. Is, people don't want to see it. But that's what it is. That's like saying people don't want to see footy. Maybe they don't. Oh, so then people wouldn't turn up, would they? We're going around in circles here, but that was Robbo's... <laughs> that's the point as well, though. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. We yeah, go yeah. around in circles every year. Every year. <laughs> so this is Robbo's comments, which were originally made on radio, followed up in his column, The Tackle. 
essentially talking about the fact that there is now an epidemic of kick mark footy. <laughs> like, really? But, but the best part is he went, he doubled down three times and then each time it got more and more ridiculous. And so his last rendition of this, the, like, his rage against kicking and marking the basic building blocks of footy <laughs> was that teams don't want to turn the ball over on their defensive 50. No shit. <laughs> What's the fundamental of the footy? Not letting them score and you scoring more than they do. And the easiest way to let them score is to give it back to them the, in their own territory. But but Jared, they don't want to I don't want to give the football up. Of course I don't want to give the football up. Possession it's the is, whole point uh, of the game. It's like saying, oh too many pitches don't don't pitch soft enough so they can hit more home runs, or too many basketballs hold to the ball and don't turn over enough. What a ridiculous statement. We did get something right. He said that this is not because of the rule changes. Well, no, it's because it's a fundamental building block of the game. <laughs> no, but there was there are questions now asked of whether the AFL's rule changes, which were designed to uh, to encourage high scoring, mm. have actually mm. done the reverse, which is not not really possible. And also, a four week sample size, and this is what Nathan Buckley said on radio yesterday. It's not a big enough sample to make any assessment, but that assertion is absurd as well. But this follows the media arc, and if you go back through the, for the through the footy media for the last couple of seasons, and we've had these scorings going down, and everyone's freaking out. As fans, do we care if scoring is low? I don't care if it's low if it's good football, and I think like to talk about the West Coast Eagles, like the two thousand eighteen Grand Final was a if great anything, example. Of you that. are the you are the reason why. <laughs> Why Robbo was worried about kicking and marking? Because you guys, are, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but you guys are really good at kicking and marking. And mm. so, what you do to win games is you kick the ball a lot and you mark it a lot. And as Richo said, really good analysis. Eighteen <laughs> times on Grand Final Day, once you have over a certain number of marks, you win a hundred percent of the time. You do. As soon as they have, you 91, never lose. Well, they've never lost if they've had more than ninety-one marks. Is it ninety-one marks? Ninety-one marks. Ninety-one. Yep, ninety-one. Which is a lot. So you will see a lot of kicking and a lot of marking in games where West Coast Eagles play. What are the first things you teach a junior footballer? Uh, kicking and marking. <laughs> mm. And you might teach handballing, but probably only after you've taught them kicking. Because mm. after all, it's football. Yes. Mm-hmm. I took a football over to Kansas last year to a conference and taught Americans how to kick and mark. That was the first thing That's I what you do. You are spreading the problem, Casey. What do people you do? You are bringing the game down here on an international level. Like, are we going to get ready? The game oh. into you should tell them to tap the ball on at all costs, take risky inside handballs in the last minute of the game. Ironically, Carlton don't lose that game on the weekend if they decide to kick the ball and then mark it. You know what we need to get rid of? Robbo. No. <laughs> no. I mean, kick to kick. After the game is encouraging, oh, yeah, we're encouraging oh, yeah. we are literally future. saying, go onto the oval and get a mate and get him to stand 15 metres away and hit him lace out again and again what a and again. In fact, you know, you could do it 91 times and then you'll win. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So I want to clear, I don't think scoring, as, as a fan, as a lover of the sport, the one thing I find more annoying than low scoring, which actually not everything, I find everything more annoying than low scoring. But my major issue with bad games is bad skill execution. It's when the ball mm-hmm. is constantly turned over. Mm. Because most things you consume, like when you consume a sitcom, it has it has a has a structure and you follow it easily. When you consume <laughs> anything, when you consume a book, it goes through is a meeting beginning and end. A game of football, you'd usually go, Oh yeah, cool, the defender's got the ball. Now I reckon looking at the rest of the field, the ball's gonna end up here in about three seconds' time. And so you can just gradually flow and it helps you follow along. When two terrible teams play each other, you have no idea where the ball's going. They have no idea where the ball's going. And usually the ball doesn't go very far because no one can do anything with it. 
like a, a great game of football was a grand final, low scoring, high ex, high skill execution, and then pressure at the right points. That, that's footy. Like, mm-hmm. if anything, we just we get absorbed into the bad games of footy. And Robbo said, "Oh, the Adelaide North Melbourne game was the worst game of football all year." Cool. It's one of nine games of the weekend. But also, there's so much footy on. Just don't mm, watch it. Something has to be the worst game of the year. Yeah, it's comparative. <laughs> there has like, to be a terrible team. There has to be a bad game. Mm. Like, I, I can't get over this. Like, you're entitled to have bad games. And ironically, what would happen if all the teams were equal? Equally skilled and equally good as you that is that every game would be a draw. And if there's one thing that we hate in AFL, it's draws. So we're, it's like we're trying to reach the limit that doesn't exist. We want everything to be equal, but also everything has to have a result. Scoring needs to be high, but pressure needs to be high. It can't be soft. We have to tackle hard. But if we tackle too hard, then we don't score enough. So we're searching for this perfect game that doesn't exist. It's a messy game. And how do you make it not messy? But kicking and marking. But apparently that's bad as well. Just watch the footy and enjoy it. I'm going to engage Robbo, though. So does he have a point in saying that the play- umpire should actually correctly adjudicate play on not 15? Well, yeah, because they should yeah. correctly adjudicate all the rules. Correct. Yeah. but I mean, I kind of agreed that there are times where you see them kick it across the goals where it's clearly not gone 15 metres because the distance of the goals is not wide enough for it to have gone 15 metres. How often do you think that happens, though? It happened. There's a lot of kicks that are not 15 that get paid. How often does it happen when it matters, though? Mm. Very, very happened a few because, years ago. Because, but like, yeah, happened someone a, got happened skewered a few years ago. Yeah, yeah like sure. a, there was one so game like, I remember where someone got issue, skewered. Yeah, it's happened. I reckon it's happened once in about three hundred and eighty-six games of footy. Because usually, what happens is in the defence they chip it to to switch it, and usually what happens is that defender plays on immediately. Yeah, exactly. Because the because the forwards have sagged off. You're right. You're, you're not so right. It, like, it's just not issues. It, the biggest issue in the game, in my opinion, is actually skill execution. Hmm. Because we still haven't quite reached that point where every club has enough skillful players to be competitive against every team, and we probably won't ever reach that point. Mm. And if anything, the only way you do that is by culling two teams out of competition, play each other twice or play to the once, have an equal draw, all these different things. But until that happens, you're going to have clusters of teams that are rebuilding, cluster teams that are bad, and a couple of a couple of contenders. We already have media people coming out and saying only four teams can win the grand final. Well, then, like, of course they're going to be crap teams then. Yeah. I also think that, like, the results already this year probably show that it's as equal as it's ever been. Like, and that is obviously what the philosophy of the AFL is. Why not focus on the positive of the competition actually providing more contests more often? That's good for the fans of those individual clubs. I would say that footy, the level of football has been lower than previous years so far. And you could hypothesise that it's because of the rule changes. But is it also but, but by also, design? Like teams not really – like knowing they need to hit the straps at the right time. Yeah, but and that's, and that's all the – everything we've talked about previously builds this point where you go, you know, fans want a, want, a, want a grand final. So they don't care what happens in the first four rounds anymore. So then we're going to see bad footy early on and footy get better as the season gets, on, get, gets going. And then we have equalisation. So we're going to have more closer results and, and less scoring because – that's what happens when two contested forces, they meet in the middle, not at one end or the other. So it's just, I don't understand. You can't have everything. And then you can't also define what good footy is because good footy is different for everyone. Depending on whether or not you're a journalist, an observer, a, a t- club nuffy, whatever. So it's just, a, it's a silly kind of thing. All the AFL can do is try and balance it. And at the moment, they're obsessed with with money. So they, they want the things they want for the game to be as financially solvent as it can be. Goals, ads. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very cynical about it, yeah. I want to address, though, the piece that Kyle Korver wrote for the Players' Tribune today. It's titled Privileged. In the piece, Korver shares his own feelings on the incident between Tabo Cephalosha and the NYPD back in 2015. This was back when Korver and Cephalosha were teammates on the Hawks. He talks about how his reaction at the time is not something he's really proud of now. He also talks about how all this was brought up after the incident between Russell Westbrook and that fan in Utah on March 11th. It's about so much more than that, though, because he addresses the issue of white privilege. The book club, which this week is... A piece from the Players' Tribune, privileged by Kyle Korver. So, team, what were your general impressions of the Kyle Korver piece? I thought this piece was fantastic. Um, I haven't read anything like this ever, I don't think. It was fantastic because I think Korver really opened himself up to perhaps a lot of criticism. He asked a lot of questions of himself in a public forum that makes him really vulnerable, that doesn't make him sound good, that makes him sound like a questionable person, which is something we probably all really fear, especially in with issues like this. Um, and he opened up a conversation that I don't think we have really had at all, but we definitely don't have often enough. So I just was reading this um, and it sort of – it. It brought up a lot of questions for me personally in terms of the research work I do um, in the fan space when it comes to like inherent gender biases and how like I interrogate my own biases when it comes to looking at other people in my space and, and I do a lot of work that looks at investigating biases that women have towards other women, um, which is really complicated and I find sometimes that, you know, I behave or think things that are really quite shameful and really hard to talk about because I think the wrong thing first because of the way that I've been conditioned. And I think for someone of his profile to acknowledge those thoughts that he has and the framing that he's been brought up with and question it in a really public forum that puts himself at the front of that for the reason that, you know, he knows that he has a responsibility with the platform that he has to open up that conversation, I think is so important. So I was sitting there reading this and I was just thinking, yeah, well, I'd never read anything like that before from someone of that profile. This is really, really important. Um, and I'm sure there's like a lot of questions that it raises that, you know, he is, you know, someone of, with a lot of privilege and that's what the piece is called. So, you know, what is his position to be able to talk about this kind of stuff? So I know there's that kind of stuff that we'll talk about and dissect a little bit more in this segment, but my first impression was just like, this is important and this is great. And, yeah, I was really, really impressed well, with it. Yeah, I don't think you can write this piece without acknowledging your own inherent biases as rawly as he did. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you make of that, Gordon. It's a piece, a reflective piece about his experience, talking about a problem that isn't his, and he doesn't go the typical privileged view of this is my opinion on that. His mm. whole thing is about this is not about me. This is about my friend, who's legitimately my friend, and what happened to him and how I responded as, an, as, as a, a reactionary thing to that. Mm. And so I went, actually, I went and saw at the comedy festival a show by Guy Montgomery that was called I Was Part of the Problem Before We Knew What It Was. And it very much got on the same lines of he had instant reactions about there's a piece in the, there's a moment in the piece where when, he was, when his friend Sarbo got arrested, the first thing he thought was, why, wasn't, why was he out at a nightclub? The day of a back-to-back. He victim blamed. Yeah, he was like, that's his fault for being out. Not, oh, if I was out doing the same thing, I wouldn't have been arrested because mm. 
or if you got arrested, well, you must be doing something wrong. So it's, it's just that, that position of privilege, not realising that, you know, there are huge incarceration rates for people of colour in, in America and all the other bits that you don't, you don't think about automatically because they don't happen to you. So just he literally just checks his privilege and then goes and explores to great, ex, to great extent the fact that even though he's in a minority group in the NBA, he still has the position of privilege because mm-hmm. everyone who goes to NBA games are mostly white. And then you see there's the treatment of fans and, and even the way that, you know, he, his teammates feel like sometimes at NBA games going like, we feel like we're in a zoo. And that's like the Westbrook experience being like, oh, they just think it's all right because they pay money, but they can treat me however they want because I'm just here to perform for them like a slave. It's just that stuff where you realise like, and even when we go and take into an AFL experience, when you see people acting the way they do it on the, on the, in the stands at defences, the way they interact with players, we forget that they're real. And even the way we talk about players, we talk about Ben Brown and someone says another man is weak. It's like it, just because they have a, have a role that we have a disconnect with doesn't mean they don't exist, doesn't mean they're not real people. And it's hard when we talk about sports, to, well, it's easy to talk about when we talk about sports to forget that they're actually people first, not, not sports people first. Mm-hmm. So my question to you guys is do we all inherently think in a discriminatory way and not acknowledge it? Uh, You've kind of already yes spoken to your to own experience. Yes to the first part of that question, yes. Um, you can't not in the world that we live in. Um, the second part of that question, do we acknowledge it? I think, well, depending on who you are, but I think generally I'm seeing people starting to, um, which is positive, but I think majority do not. Mm. Um, so I think we're in a really complicated time here with mm. that because I think – just from history, you know, speaking, um, sitting here and like we're all coming at this from, you know, a very like white Australian um, point of view, I think our experiences have all been shaped very specifically through that lens that we probably like as aware as we like to all think and I think the three of us like to think we are quite aware and sensitive to a lot of different issues and we like to acknowledge our privilege. I'm sure there are a lot of things that, so inherent within us and have been so framed that we probably don't know them until we think something or we say something and we might not acknowledge it until maybe years later when we learn something new or we listen to someone else's experience and we reflect back and realize what we said or what we thought at that time um and that's that's definitely something that I've come to notice um like in my research and sometimes I actually think had I not done the research work that I've done perhaps maybe my I don't know, awakening in, in this sort of thing might not have happened and that really scares me um, because I think there's definitely things, especially in sport, that, you know, I've thought of other people um, or I've just been really reactionary and just used the sport to mask that sort of stuff, that it's part of the game and you just have to accept it if you want to be accepted. So, yes, I think we all have those inherent biases Um I think the really important thing that this piece does and I think that Corva did was just acknowledge them and put them out there um, because I think that's so productive and I think that's where we're probably at um, at the moment we're not as good at is because that's really scary to do mm. because there's so much fear and um, and shame around that sort of stuff to say I had a really racist thought today. Like who's no one's going to say that. No one's going to admit to that because of the stigma attached to that, because of the fear attached to that. But I think the more we say or we talk about like, hey, this thing happened or I read this story in the news or this 
you know, event happened. And my first thought was this, I, I'm not okay with thinking that way anymore and talking to the right people about it and getting their experiences and just what I think Corva says a lot in the piece is just being there to listen and just listening. I think if we do that more and we talk about it more, I don't think it normalizes the problem. I think it normalizes the experience of getting better, which is what we need to do. Mm. He also talks about opting in and opting in very specific, I think a little bit as well to acknowledging the the covert rather than the overt. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of really easy to call out the person in the stands that's yelling over the fence and, and racially abusing a black player. It's far harder to call out the ingrained racist thinking that you have because of the way that the system works and the way that you've Mm -hmm. been brought up and the society you've been brought up in, which I agree we all have. Um, And even dealing with dynamics within a team. So a lot of of times we focus on, oh, a spectator did something to a player. But we we don't realise, we don't don't think about it even as participants being like, well, what about player to player, coach to player, in those environments as well on on the micro level. So the most powerful thing about this piece is that he goes and talks to his teammates. He opens up that discussion and says, oh, when this happened, I actually thought, I actually thought, like, what did you do? Because I blamed you first. Mm-hmm. Can you please explain to me what actually happens in your experience? And it would be interesting to know how often we have that. Like when we see Eddie Betts get, gets, like, get um, harassed and, and racially abused in, 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 on Instagram, are his teammates having a conversation as well? I've been like, well, actually... Like, are you are you okay? Is everything like is it happening at that at that, that level? Because it's all right to go. Oh, when when yeah, when extreme action happens, we can respond. But that doesn't that won't solve the problem. It just solves the extreme problems, and we need to go to the covert. And so yeah. that's that's the best thing, the most powerful thing that this piece is going. Well, actually, it's every interaction, it's every relationship that needs to be open mm. and listening. How is this situation for you? And how did I originally perceive it before realizing what you were thinking in that mm. moment? So he writes towards the end of the piece that guys were just sick and tired of it all. This is after the Westbrook the Westbrook incident. So do we feel like the AFL is at a similar point after the vitriol directed at Liam Ryan earlier in the season on social media? Yeah, I think we saw a really interesting time and I think actually went back to the, um, the Taylor Harris and Cecilia McIntosh incidences on social media um, that happened a few days before the Liam Ryan incident that then perhaps sparked um, or inspired the Melbourne Football Club to then take some action and have their symbolic banner that they ran through with all the social media, like mean tweets and things like that. So I think there has been, there's been an, it's been a really interesting time to see that kind of evolution of clubs and broadcasters and you know, the AFL as an organisation take some really positive steps towards that stuff. However... I'm really interested to see how this continues to move forward because I think we saw a lot of really positive things happen to some really terrible things that happened in a really short amount of time and I haven't seen anything else really happen since and I know that's only been like you know a week and a half since those things sort of played out but is it just we're going to wait until that next big blow up to do something? Because I think what Gordon said before is really important. It's not just, you know, those top level things that we need to deal with on a big scale. It's the conversational things. It's the things that are happening like on that really small scale in in conversation, you know, between teammates, in the fans of the stands, um, at all levels of society. So I wonder what the next step is for the football industry as a whole for that kind of thing because, 
it's a huge amount of work. Um, like I know after the Taylor Harris incident, the AFL and Channel 7 sort of promised that they would moderate more on their social media channels. That's a huge amount of work to have someone constantly moderating every single social media post. And I wonder if that's something that they're committed to do long term. I wonder what kind of other educational pieces are coming about. Like the video that the West Coast Eagles put out after the Liam Ryan thing, um, I thought was hugely productive because it wasn't a don't behave badly, don't do, don't say these bad things. It was a coming together of the club's Indigenous representatives and explaining why that language is so hurtful to Indigenous Australians in terms of its meeting, you know, back in from like the history of colonisation of Australia. And I think a lot of people probably don't know that history, which is not great because um, I think like our, you know, the history of Australia is not taught well enough in this country. So I think those pieces are so important, but they're, they're reactionary and I think they need to be broader and I think they need to be more conversational and I think they need to be a huge long-term project. So I'll be interested to see how these sort of things move throughout the rest of the season and into the rest of society, really. And all the learnings Corva puts on the table in the piece in terms of educating yourself about the history of black slavery in America and a whole mm -hmm. load of other things are all possible in an Australian context. It's learning about Indigenous mm. massacres. It's learning about what the experience is like for someone like Re Liam Ryan, yep. creating forums where we have more Indigenous people in media so those stories actually get told or we have players feeling comfortable telling those stories, et cetera, et cetera. And it just goes back to educate yourself about the discriminatory laws that we've had. Mm. There are so many different lifting off points where you can go and they're not necessarily things that you're actually taught at school straight up. And I think there's a lot that you can do as an individual here to, to go to the deeper level that he suggests, which is probably the, probably one of the biggest outtakes. And also yeah. it shows that we don't, we don't need to and we shouldn't wait for a greater power to enforce that because enforcing it won't work. So it's like he doesn't ask the NBA to come in and say there needs to be a racism clause in, in buying season tickets. And the AFL won't come in and say there'll be these clauses in becoming a club member because it's not – enforcing it doesn't work. You have to have to accept it, acknowledge it and act it on and in, on an individual level. I mean, everyone individually acts on it. That's when the change happens because mm. it's, it's not going to work from a yeah. top-down approach. Oh, you can change a law without changing an attitude and you could probably say that the attitude change is more important. So what are the learnings in the piece about being an ally and an effective ally? I think there are a lot of learnings. And I think, I really think Corva has done an excellent job of really listing them out. And they will come back to things that we've already said. And, you know, first is asking the questions and just being prepared to be a really active listener. Because I think there's a difference between just asking someone their experience then actually taking the time to listen and absorb because I think sometimes we we might ask someone what they think or how they feel but we come at those conversations with our opinions sort of ready to go and perhaps we don't really listen or take in their experiences. We just come at it with our own. So I think being a really active listener and active participant in those conversations is really important. Um, and I think the, the question around using your own privilege I think is really important too. Um, I think people might say things like, you know, well, you know, he's a white guy. Who, what's his, you know, position to talk about these sort of things? But at the moment in our society, you know, we do have these hierarchies, unfortunately, and we have these positions of privilege. And Corva has privilege, and that has currency. And I think there's a difference between using your privilege for 
just living your life in a privileged world and acknowledging your privilege and using it for good. And I think this piece has done that. And I think Corba has become an advocate for other people in those sort of positions to use those positions to elevate other people, to bring people along with you and give them access to your platforms too and help share stories. Because I think what we said before is conversation's key. Like we need to keep having these conversations and some people who we can learn from and who have the best stories that we can learn from don't have these platforms and don't have this privilege. So I think we need to, if we have some privilege, if we have some currency, help give it to other people who can help us learn to be better. I also think it's not a case of like whose problem is it. It's the way that it's, the way it's explained. The piece is really amazing because he, he kind of lays out that it's it's their experience. It's the minority's experience. It's our problem. Everyone's problem. Yes. And the problem won't get solved unless we all take part because we're part of the problem. And to go back to the the guy Montgomery thing is in his show he, he kind of explained that we often kind of fob it off because it's like we're not that bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not a racist. Yeah. But racism happens around us and we do nothing. And that's just as bad. And that's what Kyle Corbett is saying now. It's like, I, if you buy my jersey, know that I don't stand for the X, Y, Z. Mm. If you want to use my likeness in EA Sports, know that you're doing that. And you have my full consent, but know that I stand for these things. So when you use my likeness and you sell my jersey, you sell my values as well. And everyone should know what they are. That's a really powerful thing. Come up on you can nominate it to win the Pramarami Monkong. Come up on you can nominate it to win the Pramarami Monkong.